0: I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Worlds Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How you doing? How you feeling? What's the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope you're continuing to stay safe, sane, and healthy. Also productive as well. As we continue to fight, I feel like I've been repeating myself here over the last few podcasts, but uh, got to put that out there just to make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to do, trying to keep themselves at bay, and hopefully that uh, brighter skies will come sooner than later. But here we are, late in the week, as I have another podcast for you. Yes, we'll talk a little bit NFL Draft, the first round which took place last night in the basement, not too far from here, believe it or not, in Bronxville, for one Roger Goodell, but this podcast, episode 127, for those out there, I appreciate you downloading and listening to this content, whether you're a first timer or someone who's been with me for now 127 episodes. This is the J Rose podcast as I deliver everything, what's going on in the world of sports, and a little bit of a different tune today on this podcast. If you were with me a couple of weeks ago and listened to my euphoric and very exuberant podcast when I detailed my favorite teams and them winning a championship, And pretty much chronicling as a fan from a little boy up until a big adult How I was able to exalt and certainly bask in the glow of what it's like to win a championship Now as we all know, those days or those times are few and far between Because for the most part there's only one person or one team that can make it to the top Of their respective mountains in baseball, basketball, football and hockey And it's easy to love and enjoy The experience of what it's like for your team to win a championship But as we all know More often than not on the flip side of that There is tremendous heartache, pain And certainly you question whether or not You want to continue rooting for a fan base That doesn't seem to get over the hump Whether it's the New York Mets recently Or the Georgetown Hoyas Which is my favorite college basketball team And some other teams that even though they've won recently Like the Steelers and the Celtics But they have certainly had some very devastating losses along the way so that's what's going to be the bulk of this podcast today As I piggyback off the one a couple of weeks ago For the record, it is a Friday, April the 24th, the New Year of Our Lord 2020 So let's just get right to it, people As we get into my fandom and what it was like to be on the losing end of some of these tough games And of course, I'm not going to go through every year or every game or anything like that But just the ones that really stick to the ribs And certainly, that lasts a lifetime in the memory bank. And I'm sure a lot of people out there who are listening to this could relate to what it was like to have your team get so close and then have the victory just snatched away from you and then you have to mull it over day after day after day. And I get it. It's just sports. It's not real life. It's not having to look for a job. It's not wondering what your future is going to be like. Or, hey, I got to pay the rent this month, which I'm sure a lot of people are going through right now. But for those who do follow sports as big as I do, or even if you're just a casual fan and remember a time that your team lost a big game and what it meant and what it felt like, yes, this podcast is for you guys. So it's a little bit of some therapy, especially for those who follow the teams that I follow. But even if you don't, I'm sure whether you're a Nick fan or a Cowboy fan or a, well, Detroit Red Wings have had success, but they've also had some tough times too. Bottom line is that let's go on this little journey together, and then on the back end, we'll talk about the first round of the NFL draft, and then we'll take you home from there. Now, I'll start off with the Georgetown Hoyas. I know in the previous podcast, I talked about the euphoria of winning the 1984 national title game against Houston, and that was a one helmed by Akeem Olajuwon before he became Hakeem Olajuwon, and that was a championship that happened in Seattle. During that run there in the early 80s Where Georgetown lost to a North Carolina team Which was tough It was Ewing's rookie year And I talked about it a little bit Even though I wanted to focus more on the victories But as a 13 year old following that team I thought to myself I said well hey With Patrick Ewing A guy who's Quite frankly one of the top 10 college players of all time Or somewhere in there Probably the lower rung 6 to 10 But I felt as if as a fan you would think that they're going to go back And in 83 they didn't do so 84 they made it to the mountaintop Now we, we'll get to 85 in a second But some of the other losses over the years Whether the ones that stick to me and re, That I really feel the most We can go back to The 96 Big East Final And I understand it's a Big East Final It wasn't a regional final or Final Four Or championship game Now we talked a little bit about the 2007 Final Four And I'll get to that in a minute But the losses that really stick to you and I look at that 96 Big East final, Madison Square Garden, that was the duel between Allen Iverson of Georgetown and Connecticut's Ray Allen, tooth and nail back and forth. And the reason why that game sticks to me, if you remember, with about two minutes and 35 seconds to go, Georgetown had an 11-point lead. I want to say it was 74-63. And then Connecticut comes storming back, Obviously they pretty much run the table scoring the final 12 points including that acrobatic just off balance seemed like it bounced off the rim 16 times almost like Kawhi Leonard last year in the Eastern Conference semifinal against Philadelphia Game 7 How he made this acrobatic shot and then Georgetown gets the ball no timeouts about 5-6 seconds to go Iverson races up the court he's taking it coast to coast he pretty much has a good look for a layup he misses it Jerome Williams, the junkyard dog that he was, was able to get the rebound and just an easy putback. They call that a bunny. It was just as simple as just laying it up off the backboard. I get you could probably go up for a dunk, but still he seemed to be just too far away from trying to extend and reach and I couldn't I guess you could get fouled, but he made the right play by just trying to go up off the glass and try to knock it home and then they would have won a biggies championship, but that one went off the rim, the buzzer goes, and man that was a bitter pill to swallow because I could not stand those Connecticut teams back then, or anybody in the Big East for that matter, St. John's, Villanova, and that was a year, if you remember, to me, that was the last great college basketball run that I can remember. Now, I could name some other years, maybe in the early 2000s, and of course, as a Hoya fan, you think of 2007 when he went to the Final Four, but to me, when you had three of the five teams in the Big East that were ranked in the top eight, Where Connecticut was 3 in the country Georgetown was 5 And Villanova was 8 And remember Villanova had Kerry Kittles And it was one of those times That to me Was one of the last great years Of college basketball Now think about this You had the all American starting 5 that year Your backcourt was Ray Allen Allen Iverson Your frontcourt was Kerry Kittles Tim Duncan Marcus Camby Uh, Does it get any better than that? As far as the college level is concerned Now, we understand some of the players didn't really translate to the pros that well. I mean, Kittles had a decent career. Same for Marcus Camby. Obviously, he played a million years, was more of a guy that, despite he was drafted after Allen Iverson in the 96 draft, didn't really amount to be the player that he was coming out of college, but still had a long and very productive career. And we all know about Tim Duncan. So when you think back in college basketball and you look at that time, you say to yourself, wow, those were not only Hall of Fame talents for the most part, but at the same time, you could not just relate to those guys as players But as a fan you say Oh yeah I remember those guys vividly So when you look at just the last decade Could you even name Who the five All-American players were Let's say in 2014 Were those guys sticking out as much Like they did back in the 90s And I get that that seems like 50 years ago It was another lifetime when it comes to college basketball But that's to me what, what the beauty of it Despite players staying at least two, three, four years And making themselves part of that institution And then therefore You know if they lost That year That they were going to come back the following year To try to make another run And hopefully get a national title And then of course 2007 was tough But that was to me Of course it hurts when you get to a Final Four and lose As Georgetown did to Ohio State that year When Greg Oden and Mike Conley Were part of the Buckeyes But with Georgetown Although they were ranked number two In their region that year In the East And they beat North Carolina But to me, they were playing with house money because Ohio State, as we all know, they were dominant that year. And Ohio State had pretty much the number one player in the country in Odin. But them losing that game, and it wasn't heartbreak like the Big East game where it was in the final seconds in Georgetown, pretty much lost the game as opposed to Connecticut winning. But that was a game where, yes, it stung, but it didn't stick to the ribs like the Big East final. Or even some of the other games. That Georgetown played. How did Georgetown lose to Ohio University in the first round? As they did. I believe it was 2011. They lost to Davidson. Now granted they had a guy named Steph Curry. Who people knew that he was a big shooter. But nobody ever thought that he would reach the NBA stratosphere as a player. As he has being in the league for 10 years. And pretty much changing the game. And becoming the greatest shooter. Arguably in NBA history. But losing a second round to a team like Davidson. You're Georgetown. You know Georgetown doesn't lose to teams like that. Or even in 97, the year after Iverson left when they lost to UNC Charlotte. These were the type of teams that Georgetown were losing to and it just made you sick. And yes, it sticks to your ribs in a different way, but not in a heartache, just gut punch to the stomach type of loss. And might as well just segue to that because on April 2nd, 1985, when Georgetown pretty much breezed through the tournament, including beating St. John's uh, 77-59, I think it was, at Rupp Arena in Kentucky during that uh, run and here it was against Villanova a team they knew very well and not to rehash that game but as a fan watching that on that Monday night it was just tough to digest knowing that in the second half of that game Villanova missed one shot they only took 10 but they made 9 of them and as we all know if you could do the math it's 90% and you had guys like Harold Jensen and Gary McLean, and obviously Ed Pinckney here from the Bronx and they pulled out one of the biggest upsets in college basketball history. There's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. And what was sad was that was Ewing's final college game. He had to go into the NBA draft and into the pros knowing that that final game of his career, and it was an illustrious career from the standpoint of him making it to three title games. Now he only won one, which wasn't great. And him being a big part of what the Big East was, at least back then, going into the new millennium. Now the Big East is... Please, half the teams aren't even there from the time when Patrick Ewing was at Georgetown, but that was just a kick to the groin, and that's one that obviously will stay with you for the rest of your life. Georgetown can make it to the tournament and win five straight Final Fours or five straight national titles, but that one will always stick in the closet, almost like a bad suit that you don't want to get rid of because you know you could still fit in it, or worse, you've gained some weight, and you know that at one point I'm going to lose the weight and fit into that suit. And it may be out of style And it may not look as good But you liked it from the time that you purchased it But you'll never get rid of it And it'll just stay there And stay there And stay there And pretty much that, that's what that loss was Georgetown to Villanova back in 1985 Now as we move on to the Islanders And I talked a little bit about this in the other podcast The one thing about the Islanders Unfortunately when you look back Especially in the last I'll go back at 30 years And that's 1990 and that year they lost in five to the Rangers. They got swept by the Rangers in 94. 93 was their little magic carpet ride when they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and they lost to the Canadians. Now them just beating the Penguins without their best player. And again, if you listen to the other podcast, the Penguins were going for a three-peat at that time. And they didn't have Pierre Turgeon who got hit by a cheap shot, Dale Hunter on the Capitals who I could never stand. And unfortunately for the Islanders Their quest to make it back to a Stanley Cup Which in the 80s it seemed like it was a Foregone conclusion that they were going to go Especially in the early part of the decade But since then you really had not had a lot to cheer about And haven't had a lot of those type of Either victories or in this case losses Where they just stuck to your ribs Now the one series that I could think of Back in 2002 When they had that ferocious series Against the Toronto Maple Leafs If you recall, it was very physical, nasty, Darcy Tucker, Shane Corson, Ty Domi was on that team, but the Islanders had their tough guys, Jim Cummins, Eric Cairns, it was just a physical series, especially that game six, and I actually watched a little bit of that the other day, and it just made me think, I get it's 18 years ago, it might as well have been 1800 years ago, but the sport back then was, even light years, better and different than what it was today, I mean, it's a shell of its old self, but I digress. And the Islanders lost the game seven where Alexei Yashin, who had an opportunity to score a goal late in that third period, I believe they were down 3-2, and what did he end up doing? He was pretty much right there at the top of the circle, and all he had to do was just take a shot. Now, chances are, we won't know. He could have shot it wide, he could have shot it into the goal for the equalizer, or worse, it would have gotten saved, knocked away, we'll never know, but he ended up passing instead as if the moment was too big for him. So that's something that sticks to me, but not along the lines of some of the other losses that they've had over the years when I think of the Islanders. And I know 79 comes to mind now. Again, I wasn't really into hockey at that time, and they lost to the Rangers there in six games. But the one loss as an Islander fan that really bothered me over the years, and it's probably when I look at the scale of all my teams, this was probably the lowest one. But when the Islanders in the first round in 1988, they they played the New Jersey Devils, and the Devils were a team that when they moved to New Jersey from Colorado, they couldn't sniff the playoffs if you gave them a roadmap and a GPS. And when they made it to the postseason, and the Devils, although they had some talent on their team, but they mean the main catalyst on that team was their goalie and a guy named Sean Burke, who I believe was on the Canadian Olympic team, and he was a tall guy, 6'3", big target there in net. And the Islanders couldn't find an answer. They ended up losing in six games to the point where in game six at the Meadowlands they were down 6-1 in the third period. They ended up scoring four goals and came within literally a nanosecond of tying the game when Pat LaFontaine streaking up the ice, he took one last shot and Burke made the save just as time expired and that was a tough one to swallow. I can look back at the 84 drive for five when they lost to Edmonton and remember they beat Edmonton the year before to get their fourth straight Stanley Cup And they went into that Stanley Cup final against an Edmonton team that was ready. They were primed. Gretzky, of course, was at the peak of his powers. But then again, you could say that about any year with Gretzky because for a guy that won nine MVPs, he was pretty much before his peak, considering just three years before that, he scored 92 goals in one year. And people could say, oh, that Edmonton loss was brutal because they were going for their fifth straight, which would have equaled the Montreal Canadiens for the longest back in the 50s when they won four in a row, remember, or excuse me, five in a row, and then they won four in a row in the late 70s right up until when the Islanders won their four in a row. And the one thing I think about that run, well, two things. One is game one when Kevin McClellan, of all players, he was a tough guy on that team, not known for his goal-scoring ability when he was able to draw first blood and get the opening goal of the game, and that was in the early third period. And he shot it from a weird angle. And it went into the net and it was almost one of those that if you blinked, you you wouldn't have seen it. And McClellan scores the goal and they were able to hang on 1-0 and you think to yourself, oh, geez, that's tough. Well, the Islanders will come back. And I believe that game was on a Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken. And then Saturday night, they rolled to a 6-1 victory behind Clark Gillies' hat trick. So you're thinking, okay, fine. So that was number one. But number two, this was the first year, just like with the NBA, as far as their championship round is concerned, the... NHL shifted from a 2-2-1-1-1 final to a 2-3-2 And then the Islanders They had to go to Edmonton And they actually led 2-1 In the third game Early second period But the play that certainly turned the whole series around Was Mark Messier, Deacon Gordonine, And he wristed a shot right past Billy Smith to make it 2-2 And ever since that goal It was just an avalanche For the Islanders And they were certainly They couldn't even Get a life preserver Not only for that game For the rest of the series It was all Edmonton After that And they went on to win In five games That I would have thought that Hey down 3-1 They would have come back To the Coliseum Maybe they would have won a game And even though They probably would have Set themselves up For the execution in game 6 But at least it would have been Extended another game But instead They celebrated on the old Northlands Coliseum ice Game 5 And it was tough I'll never forget That was a Saturday night I believe it was May 19th 1984 15 years old And yeah Just to think that it was over Drive for 5 And Sadly That was the last time That the Islanders ever made it to a cup final And that's now 36 years Like I said More losses Than victories So those were some of the key losses As far as the Islanders are concerned And as I go through it there's a couple of others off the top of my head. Not really in the postseason. I'm not going to look at them losing to Tampa a few years back or even when they lost to Buffalo in 2007. I mean, there's a lot of different playoffs that they made it to even after the run of the 90s. Because remember, they didn't make it to the postseason for many years after that 94 season. And when they finally did, when they turned the franchise around a little bit by bringing in guys like Alexa Yashin and Michael Pekka and them trying to make a push to at least have some sort of relevance, they couldn't get out of the first round. To turn my attention to the Celtics, as far as their losses, I can look at three come to mind, and I'll put them in order as far as severity is concerned, and all of them are in the postseason. The third one I think of off the top of my head, I look back at the 82 Eastern Conference final between the Celtics and Sixers, and I'll never forget, I was sitting in my cousin's living room, at the time 13 years old, and the year before... For those who listened to the episode about the great victories, how in 81 where on a Sunday afternoon, game seven of the 81 Eastern Conference finals, where I was playing in a Little League game, and I rushed home to CDN, and Bird hit that shot, and then they went on to beat the Rockets in the NBA final that year. Well, now the year later, and they came back from the same deficit. They were down 3-1, They had home court advantage. They won game five in Boston, won game six in Philadelphia, and they came back to the Boston Garden. You're thinking, can they do this two years in a row? The Celtics back then, they rarely, if ever, lost game sevens at home. The only one, I believe, at the time was when they lost to the Knicks in the 73 Eastern Conference Final, 94-78, and here it was the second year in a row, and I was hoping, praying that the Celtics would have gone ahead and beaten the hated Sixers at that time because that team, I couldn't... I couldn't stand I couldn't stand watching Andrew Tony kill us Obviously Julius Irving And that was pre Moses Malone The next year That summer That's when they traded For Moses Malone Because if you remember The Sixers then played The Lakers in the finals And the Lakers won In six I believe And then that summer They traded For Moses Malone And then obviously The next year They had one of the great years Of all time Including sweeping the Lakers there in the 83 final But that was one that really stuck to me for a while And even though the success of the Celtics that decade Where they won in 84 And then obviously in 86 It kind of gets overshadowed But the hatred of the Sixers and losing that game Was just, ugh, oh, it just bothered me to no end The second toughest And I can look at 80, uh, the 85 final Which was rough to see Kareem June 9th, 85 I'll never forget that as long as I live where the Celtics, after winning a game four the way they did in just dramatic fashion, Dennis Johnson hitting that shot, and just like I said earlier with the Islanders, the 2-3-2, you wonder how that series would have went if the series would have went back to Boston for game five. Now, the Lakers were a little bit better that year, and the Celtics, despite them pulling out those heroics, you kind of thought that if they could somehow win a game five, they could come home the kind of ice that had those two chances to win as opposed to having to come back down 3-2 and having two opportunities to win. And I felt, even in my heart, I felt that when they lost that game five, I said, this is going to be tough to win twice against a Laker team that, remember, the year before, the Celtics were able to win in seven games. And I just looked at that game six and that was tough to see Kareem, I'll never forget toward the end of the game, him with his arms up where, I guess, I don't know, maybe about two minutes ago he had just a very decisive basket and that pretty much iced the game for them. And that was just tough to watch. So as, as bad as that was, but to me, the second one, at least that I've watched, I got to go back to the 2010 final, game seven. And I watched that not too long ago, which was Kobe's last NBA's final game. And knowing that the Celtics went to LA up 3-2, we know what happened in game six with Kendrick Perkins. And I'm not trying to make Kendrick Perkins out to be Bill Russell, But he was just a major force inside. He was our policeman. He showed a lot of toughness and a lot of grit. And it was important going up against that front court, which, as we all know, I'm not going to say that they were soft, but the way they treated Pau Gasol, even Lamar Odom in the 08 finals, and knowing that they had a chance to pretty much end the series there in the Game 6. And in those opening minutes, he tore his ACL. And then obviously what happened there in Game 7, which was just very tough, because the Celtics had a... 13 point lead there in the third quarter About halfway through Off the top of my head I think it was 55-42 And not to say that they were going to coast Or not to say that they should have won the game Because as we all know Especially in the NBA over the last 10 years You can have a 13 point lead 14, 15, even 20 point lead And we've seen teams come from behind In just either dramatic fashion Or just unexpected fashion And with the way the felt And Kobe had a terrible game He shot 6 for 24 Though he had 15 rebounds And Pau Gasol of course, had a very productive game and was integral in their victory. But the killer was Ron Artest. And Artest had a game-high 20 points. He was the guy that had the biggest shot of the game. And that one is going to stick because that Celtic team, when they were constructed, a lot of people thought that they could have won more than one. Now, thankfully, they got the one. We don't understand what happened in 09 with the knee injury to Kevin Garnett in Utah, which pretty much knocked him out for the remainder of the season. That was, I believe, in February after the All-Star break. And then the Celtics came close in 2012 when they played the Heat. And that's another tough loss too, but LeBron was just on another planet that night to the tune of 45-15-5, and that game six, when they could have wrapped it up and made it to an NBA final. And they would have been playing the Oklahoma City Thunder, which would have been interesting because you would have had the young guard with... Russell Westbrook Kevin Durant And James Harden Going up against the old guard And of course Paul Pierce Kevin Garnett Ray Allen And that was the last of the Celtics As we Knew of them After that And of course They've been able to forge Their own identity now Under Coach Brad Stevens And the players that they have now And away we go But now The number one loss I gotta go back to game four Of the 87 final Lakers Celtics And the Lakers had a lead In that fourth quarter And we all know the shot was Magic's baby hook over the three Hall of Famers in McHale, Parish, and then Bird was trailing. And it was just tough to watch at the time. I'll never forget it. It was just a brutal loss knowing that Bird hit that big three to give them a one-point lead. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, if the Celtics pull this off, there'll be 2-2. Hopefully they could steal a game five where they could go back to LA and see if they could win. Now remember, they lost the first two games of that series badly. They won a game three and then certainly... Were that close to evening the series And certainly would have made it that much more fascinating But when Magic hit the baby hook And then Bird had the open look And I'm sure you probably watched the 30 for 30 On the Lakers and Celtics Where Pat Riley he even said How he had a great view of Bird Taking that shot And Worthy who was exhausted James Worthy that is Where he was following Bird on that play And then he just slipped him And was able to move toward the three point line As he was going to the corner of the Laker bench and Worthy was even saying to himself, oh no, what did I do? Riley's looking at the shot, which was pretty much the almost the same area where Bird hit the three to take the lead. And he's looking at it, and he says, from, from my vantage point, it looked like it was going in. And as we all know, it hit the back part of the rim, came out, and that was it. And all the air went out of the balloon. You could see it in Bird's face. You could see it pretty much from the fans in the building. And that was just tough because at that point, that was the end of that Celtic run. You can look at 88, them losing to the Pistons the way they did and those are some hard for series remember in 87 they beat them thanks to Isaiah Thomas's inbounds pass which the Pistons were ready to wrap up a game 5 to go back home to game 6 to win the series and we all know what happened there so the Celtics went on to the finals then and then in 88 when they lost at the old Pontiac Silverdome I'll never forget the very end when you see McHale and Isaiah Thomas shaking hands but it was almost like a fierce handshake based on the ferocity of those games being played, not just that year, but in years past, because those were just highly intense physical games. Bird and Lambier, Paris and Lambier, Paris knocking Lambier to the floor and him not getting ejected. I just I tell you, you watch those games, it was almost as if you're watching roller derby. Because the intensity and the ferocity of those games and what the league was at that time, those you know, teams hated each other, whether you're Boston Philly Detroit and Boston, even to a certain extent, Lakers-Celtics, or even a bigger extent, only because it was for a championship, and then Lakers-Pistons, I mean, those teams just hated each other, and but they had a lot of respect, and it was one of those things where, as a fan, when you looked at the 88, and they lost in six games, and at that point, you just said to yourself, as a Celtic fan, I said, this is it. They're not going to make anything close to another run, considering that they have made it. From 1984 to 88 To at least An Eastern Conference Final In each of those five years And obviously they didn't sniff the Finals Until they got back in 2008 And of course we know what happened then So now to turn my attention And this is going to be very interesting people So now For the Steelers And then the Mets The Steelers When I think back and it's, I understand it's hard for me to argue this because they won two Super Bowls pretty much in the last 15 years. It's amazing to think it's been 15 years. Uh, where does the time go? And of course, they made it to a Super Bowl, Super Bowl 45 against Green Bay, which it, it bothered me. Of course, you never want to lose. And it would have been great. Roethlisberger would have had his third Super Bowl and would have been a shoo-in for the Hall of Fame. And I think he is now. Would he be first ballot? Remains to be seen. And I don't think... Just to digress for a second, when if and when the season comes back, and if he does come back this year, as long as this play doesn't fall off a cliff, I still think his legacy is intact. And you would think that he should make the Hall of Fame, considering although he did not win a Super Bowl MVP. But anyway, when I look back at the Steelers' history, the losses that stick to my brain, and Lord knows there were a ton of tough tough, tough ones, especially in the Coward era. And even though Tomlin had a couple there too, I think at Tomlin's first ever playoff game, he would he just. Coast awful He was just terrible With the two point conversions And It's funny enough He was still doing that Even as early as Just in the last few years Where he had this affinity Because of the High powered offense That they had But the one thing That uh, sticks to me As far as the The three big losses The first one And I'll go in order From three two and one The third is the AFC championship game In 97 where the Steelers lose to the Broncos. That was a game that the Steelers actually had a chance there at the end on a third and six, and I actually talked about it on the podcast. If you want to go back in the archives, I had former linebacker of the Steelers, LeVon Kirkland, and I'll talk about that play in a minute, but he certainly put forth those three or four-year window From 94 to 97 In very good perspective As far as what the Steelers did So if you're a big Steeler fan Even a football fan You definitely want to go back on that That was just If you go back in the archives I don't remember what the Number of the podcast was But it was around Christmas Just this past year So you just have to go back A few months But when I think about that game They were about Eight and a half point favorites They killed them in the regular season In early December I'll never forget It It was December 7th in 97 Cordell was having a phenomenal year it was his first full years of starting quarterback. They were down 21-7, and he pretty much single-handedly just brought the whole team back. And they won a game 35-24, and they were on their way. So then, fast forward to the championship game. They were tied at seven, and then the Broncos took the lead to the point where Cordell was now fumbling left and right. He was throwing bad picks right out of that gate to start the second half. He threw that pick in the end zone. I believe it was Steve Atwater who caught it and then the famous shot of Bill Romanowski walking over to Cordell Stewart as he's banging his helmet as if, oh, you idiot. You know, how could you do that? Which was tough to watch because as you all know, as great as a competitor that Romanowski was, but he at the same time, he just wanted to, ugh, you couldn't stand him. And then they had a shot there. It was 24-14. They got a touchdown there in the corner. I believe it was Charles Johnson. Well, maybe it was Andre Hastings. I think it was Charles Johnson, the wide receiver from Colorado who got the... Touchdown there And then The Steelers Were able to Pin the Broncos back And remember That was Elway's Shot to go to a Super Bowl And had not made it to a Super Bowl Since the San Francisco Super Bowl year Which was what Seven years prior And it got blown out 55-10 But here it was They had an opportunity To get them off the field I believe with no timeouts Off the top of my head But I remember the play vividly It was third and six if they get them off the field, they were deep in their own territory, they would punt the ball, the Steelers would get the ball somewhere around midfield, or at least their own 40, and away they went. And remember, they were only down by three at the time, so they just needed the field goal. So what happened? The famous play where John Elway just told Shannon Sharp, a la Sandlot Football, finger in the dirt to say, hey, just get yourself open, make sure that you, at least at the Six yard or if not at least at the seven yard mark Just to make sure that we could get that first down And sure enough that was the case The game was over And that was just a brutal loss But no, no wait, it gets better Four years later in an AFC title game Against the New England Patriots When Tom Brady Who was thrust into the starting quarterback position that year Remember that was right after 9-11 In the old Foxborough Stadium Where Mo Lewis of the Jets Hit Drew Bledsoe I believe he had a collapsed lung And internal bleeding Where Tom Brady was now Going to become the starting quarterback And he Led his team To not only a division title But a two seed Also the Week prior The snow game With the tuck rule We, we know the whole deal But that Sunday game And to me this game was reminiscent of Game number one Which I'll get to As far as just the bitter Brutal losses that stick to your ribs For the rest of your life The Steelers had another, I want to say eight and a half or close to a 10 point digit favorite at home. Of course, Tom Brady, first time playing on the road in the postseason. And they had a chance to go to a Super Bowl, which they would have played the Rams, and that would have been fascinating. Granted that the Steelers' defense wasn't as dominant as they were in the middle of the 90s, and of course then later on when they drafted Troy Polamalu and they brought Guys that obviously were Had won two Super Bowls later on in that Decade But the thing is is that when I look at that game The Patriots Won that championship game On two plays And the two plays was a punt return by Troy Brown Which was 55 yards and if you recall Troy Edwards who was a Number one pick in 98 was a bust Wide receiver from Louisiana Tech How he During the punt was out of bounds and then came back in bounds and I believe made the tackle so the penalty was that he was obviously out of bounds and it made the tackle so Belichick chose to re-kick they re-kicked Troy Brown 55 yards it t- seemed like it took him four strides and he was in the end zone so that made it one of their touchdowns and then when the Steelers were trailing and they were lining up for a field goal Chris Brown, if you remember him, the field goal kicker, he gets a kick that's blocked and then it gets returned for a touchdown. So they had two special teams touchdowns in the game. And then on top of that, they did have Brady who left the game, if you remember, with a knee injury during a sack, or I believe it was a play where he threw the ball and then he got hit and he turned and crumbled to the turf. So Bledsoe had to come into the game and I was rejoiced because Bledsoe now, he had not played pretty much the whole year. He's rusty. He was able to throw a touchdown in the back of the end zone, I believe right before the half which kind of reminded me of the Super Bowl when Brady did that against the Rams. And then the Steelers had two opportunities down 24-17. Cordell throws a bad pick. You're like, oh, here we go. And then they were in field goal territory. The Patriots were. So Vinatieri lines up for a field goal. He misses. What about a minute and change to go? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, let's see now. What can Cordell do? And what does he do? He overthrows his receiver, I believe it was Lawyer Malloy, picks off that last pass and you just sick to your stomach. And I'll never forget after that game how I felt. I said, how many more of these games am I going to watch before I get it and say to myself, why am I wasting my time? I really felt that way. I was at Blondie's, the bar on 79th uh, between Amsterdam and Broadway with a bunch of my Steeler cronies back then. And I walked up to the top step and right outside in the sidewalk there, I just sat there or stood there and I said to myself, why, why am I suffering? Why am I continuing to year in, year out, watch this team just implode in the most, in the biggest spots and they, they lost that NFC championship or excuse me, they lost the AFC championship back in 97, right? They went to the Super Bowl, lost to the Cowboys and that was a tough loss too. I mean, people would say, well, J Reels, that was for a Super Bowl. Why isn't that not tough? Well, I mean, that was the Cowboys. The Cowboys won three and four Super Bowls during that run. And everybody thought the Steelers, they were 13 and a half point underdogs in that game and they covered, if you recall. And right, they had an excellent shot to take the lead. And we know about Neil O'Donnell and Larry Brown. We get that. And that was definitely tough. But it wasn't as tough as losing in 2001 to a team that we by far should have beaten. And if you take those two plays away, and I understand you can't, you can't rewrite history and you can't change it. We get that. But when you have a team... That beat you on two plays You look at the mirror Or you look Into the distance Whatever And you say to yourself This is how we're going to lose these games You rather would have been Dominated from the start And I'll give you an example In 2004 When the Steelers Played the Patriots At home again In an AFC title game Mind you It was Ben Roethlisberger's Rookie year The Patriots Were three point favorites In that game And you wonder why The Steelers Were 15 and one that year but the Patriots were 14-2. And of course, if you recall, the year before that, the Patriots went to the Super Bowl and they beat the Carolina Panthers and they won two out of three to that point. And as we all know, Pats win 41-27. Ben had a chance at 17-7 right before the half as they're marching down the field to make it at least 17-10 to cut it to within at least one touchdown or maybe even to cut it to within a field goal. And he throws a pick to Rodney Harris and he takes it back the other way and goodnight to the lights. 24-7 you could pretty much Shut the TV off at that point So even that loss wasn't as bad And I get that the Seattle Seahawks fan Could say the same thing And throw it in our Steelers fans' faces When they look at Super Bowl Forty, As I detailed in that podcast a few weeks ago How the Steelers won that Super Bowl Based on three plays The third and long to Heinz Ward Which ended up at the pretty much at the goal line And then Roethlisberger questionably Punched it in The 75-yard touchdown run by Willie Parker and then of course you had the flea flicker or the end around where Antoine Randall throws the touchdown to Heinz Ward he wins the MVP and away we go so the Seahawk fan could say well you guys won a Super Bowl in three plays and I could look at him and say yeah you know what you're 1000% right so when the Patriots win that game and they win it on two plays well guess what there's more because there's another game that to this day when I think about and I watch and I watched it actually not that long ago And I ask myself and say to myself, how in the hell did we lose this game? And to me, that team was better than the team that they lost to the Patriots. Although they were the better team than the Patriots that year, but this Steeler team out of that whole run and even LeVon Kirkland said that. This is the one that sticks to the ribs and will just be forever etched in my heart and soul. The 94 AFC Championship game against the Chargers. That game, everything what that season meant, that was the 75th anniversary of the NFL They had a great year that year They Had a one seed They were able to Play the Charger team That had beaten the Dolphins the week before And this is one of the things that I Learned as a sports fan in my 20s I'll never forget Miami was playing at San Diego And Pete Stoyanovich lined up for a field goal To take the lead In San Diego And it was I guess maybe I don't know how many seconds I don't think it was Time expired or maybe whatever it was 10 seconds, 20 seconds ago, And he lines up for this field goal And he misses it I think it was Pete Sojanovich I can't recall I want to say Pete Sojanovich So anyway, he Lines up for the field goal Kicks it Goes wide left I believe And right at that moment When I watched that I said to myself The Steelers are going to the Super Bowl Why did I say that to myself? Two reasons One Because I was afraid of Dan Marino and even in 94 and that was the year after he remember he tore his Achilles on the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium turf and I thought if there's ever going to be another shot for Dan Marino to get back to a Super Bowl this is going to be it for him to go back to Pittsburgh in an AFC title game where he obviously grew up and went to college the story was just set up perfectly so I did not want to see Marino I did not want to see the Dolphins so that was number one and number two I said, San Diego, they've never been this far. Well, of course, they've made it to championship games in Cincinnati in that uh, Freezer Bowl, 59 below in nineteen in the 1981 season. But San Diego has not come that close to a Super Bowl ever. And I thought to myself, let the West Coast warm weather team come to Pittsburgh where they'll have to freeze. Hopefully, it'll be 20 degrees, wind chills in the single digits, snow, ice, whatever. And then we could go on to a Super Bowl and play at that point would have been the 49ers Which to this day a lot of people think That the Steels would have put up a big fight Now that was the Niners year They hired all these mercenaries as we know And I'll digress To me that ring was a little bit uh, tainted Now of course it goes in the record books But they i mean—they hired everybody under the sun And that was before free agency And the salary cap I should say Where they had a cap on being able to sign to all these players And the Niners did whatever it took to get people on that team To win a Super Bowl so, that day I'll never forget as long as I live January 15th, 1995 It was a Sunday The 1 o'clock game In the Northeast It was in the 50s It was cloudy and rain And I thought to myself That is not a good sign And then the Steelers on the opening drive They score a touchdown John L. Williams pass over the middle In the end zone Away we go The Chargers couldn't move the ball To save their lives Stan Humphries was the quarterback If you remember They couldn't do anything So, Barry Foster has a fumble I believe, at midfield, and then they end up kicking a field goal at that point, 7-3. They went to the locker room, 10-3. Chargers had the ball to start the second half, and to me, this was one of the telltale signs. Humphreys throws a pass to the left side where Rod Woodson picks it off. He runs it back a little bit, gets tackled, and I thought to myself, if they could somehow get a touchdown here, if they can make it 17-3, two scores, let's go, and that defense was very good that year, I thought they would have been fine. Instead they ended up kicking a field goal It was 13-3 So although it was two scores But it was only 10 points Which is a huge difference Then later in that quarter You had the one play where Alfred Papunu Where it was a blown coverage Obviously they bit on the play action The Natron means And Papunu who was a guy that had a, Pretty much a cup of coffee in the NFL uh, Islander kid He had the touchdown You're looking at a 14-10 game You're saying okay fine Steelers couldn't muster anything They couldn't move the ball They couldn't get any type of Offensive continuity And then what about five minutes to go there In the fourth quarter That long pass Stan Humphries to Tony Martin Where Tim McKayer got burned on that play 17-14 And you think to yourself Oh geez So the Steelers then march on down the field They get all the way down to the three yard line Clock is ticking They had four chances to punch it in And they didn't punch it in And to this day and I know people who went to that game at the old Three Rivers Stadium, that old venerable Stadium. I know people who went to that game, and when that pass was incomplete over the middle, I believe Dennis Gibson, linebacker, deflected it, hit the ground. Everybody on the San Diego sideline just jumped and yelled and screamed, and that's all you heard in the stadium. You could have heard a pin drop if it wasn't for that. And that loss stuck with me so bad because I thought we were going to Super Bowl. For all the things that I mentioned Just a few minutes ago I really truly felt That that was it We're going to go I haven't seen the Super Bowl Since they went To the Super Bowl 14 When they beat the Rams And that One And to this day As I think about it I remember I remember it as if It happened last week And right They've won two Super Bowls again So John J. Reels you should not even worry about that Those demons were exercised But when you're A sports fan And you Invest The time Energy Effort Emotions These Games just never go away. They never do. And right, I could look at those Super Bowl victories as I talked about in the other podcast and I could look especially Super Bowl 43, the Santonio Holmes catch, the, as I call the gift that keeps on giving. And yes, I could replay that over my head a million times and just think about where I was and what took place and how they just pulled that game out of their rear end. But yeah, those losses though, man, whew, those are scars that's, they they're not visible scars, of course, but those are the emotional scars that they'll just never go away. And then to turn my attention to the Mets before I get to the NFL draft. Now the Mets, I, there's three that jump off right off the right off the bat. Yes, you could say the 2000 Yankees. Me, knowing I'm a diehard Met fan and the Yankees, I cannot stand. Uh, please, they're probably gonna be number one on my list as far as all time hated teams. How could you not living in the city? But that was bad. But we lost in five games. If we lost a game seven, Yankee Stadium, and we we're up, let's say, 3 nothing in the ninth inning and lose, oh, please, uh, that, that's probably the number one that would beat the Charger-Steeler 94 AFC title game by far. But that wasn't the case. You can look at game one. Ugh, Armando Benitez and Paul O'Neal. Yeah, that was brutal. Absolutely. But no, that's not up there. Neither is 2015 where Jeurys Familia, the quick pitch to Alex Gordon, four three in the ninth inning, game one, and he hits it over the center field wall, and end up losing. What was it, the fourteenth inning, whatever it was, and of course they lost that in 2015. I can look at some of these other losses. I can even look, and it's funny because they're not all playoff related, and not to say that they. I mean, you could look at '99 when they lost to the Braves, and that was brutal. And you know what? I should probably put that up there because it was a playoff game. That game six, which was just otherworldly from the standpoint of Al Leiter on three days rest he gets bombarded what do you go two-thirds of an inning he gives up all these runs and then the bullpen had to shut it down there pretty much for the whole night but then Piazza hits that home run off of Smoltz in the seventh inning to tie the game they ended up taking the lead twice thanks to Melvin Moore of all people but then John Franco and Armando Benitez spit the bit and then in whatever the 11th or 12th inning Kenny Rogers walks Andrew Jones and the Braves go on to the World Series to lose to the Yankees And that would have been interesting Because then the Mets would have played the Yankees in back-to-back years If they would have won that series Now they were down 0-3 They won game 4 Behind Al Leiter. I believe that game was 1-0 off the top of my head well, I want to say 3-0 But I think it was one that was a low-scoring game And then of course you had the Grand Slam single in game 5 With Robin Ventura And that should be up there as, as far as a loss is concerned And you know what, I'll make that number 3 because th- these other two were just gut-wrenching But this one, one more than the other And it's weird because People could look at the 06 The Carlos Beltran And that was, oh That, that to me, that's number two And when you look at that 06 to 08 run Boy, I mean, you had one bad moment after the other 06 is number two and not because of the Belchance strikeout. I know Met fans to this day and most baseball fans, I looked at the call third strike as I've said it once and I said it a zillion times. I don't care if your name is Babe Ruth. I don't care if your name is Ted Williams. I don't care if your name is Wade Boggs. I don't care if your name is even Tony Gwynn. Or let's even go back. Pete Rose and how about Ty Cobb? Throw all those names. Put those players at the plate to watch that Uncle Charlie curveball of Adam Wainwright None of those guys would have hit that pitch. None. Because the trajectory of that ball, the way that hook went, there is no way, I'm sorry. You could put any of those guys up there, they are not hitting that pitch. Yeah, I think back to that series. I look at game two, they should have won that game. Where they had a lead there, 6-3, Scott Spezio, hitting the ball over the ballpark and then they end up winning late. Glavin didn't come through in game five. And then we all know what happened there in Game 7. And that was one that the Mets should have been went to the World Series that year. They were that dominant that year. The Cardinals won 83 games. It's just, ugh, it's just brutal. Uh, brutal. I mean, what could you say? That was just one that, ugh. I'm just thinking about it now. It just brings back bad memories. And to think that that's 14 years ago. 14. Uh, where does the time go? Well, anyway, so I could look at These games And I tell you man It just it just All these games Going back to all my teams As I think about it And sometimes I just have to stand here In amazement And just wonder Etc But anyway Let's go back Let me uh, Get back to And get focused here So now So you had the 99 Brave game As number 3 And then 2006 Was number 2 And I also want to throw in For honorable mention The 07 and 08 seasons That's right Because they were all Put together here 07 If you remember They Had that seven game lead With 17 games to play Over the Phillies And they collapsed Like a house of cards And they lost that final game I'll never forget this It was a Sunday Final game of the regular season Mets Needed to win And they would have been fine And remember They were going Head to head With the Phillies there For the division And Tom Glavin Couldn't make it To the second out Of the first inning He pitched one-third of an inning, gave up seven runs. And here's a guy who's a lifetime Atlanta Brave. He comes to the Mets in 03, and you think to yourself, oh, all right, well, after the 03 season, and you think, okay, well, we got Tom Glavin. That's kind of tough. He's killed us over the years, et cetera, but he's one of ours now. And he pitched well in that game one in the 2006 National League Championship Series where I was at, and he pitched phenomenal. And then, of course, I just mentioned about him not performing well in game five of that same series, but couldn't get out of the first inning. And the one thing that gets forgotten about that game is they were down seven-nothing to the Marlins, first inning and then they actually tacked on a run and they had Ramon Castro at the plate with the bases loaded and he hits a long fly ball at the left field and off the bat you're thinking oh no no way and it gets caught right at the wall I forgot who the left fielder was Josh Willingham probably I believe it was Josh Willingham he's at the wall catches it with his pretty much his back on the wall and if the Mets had any shot to even get in the game that was it and if Castro if that ball would have went over the wall I thought the Mets would have won the game Because you went from 7-0 to 7-5 first inning? Uh, Come on. And I believe they lost 8-1. It was a brutal game. I mean, what could you say? And then the following year, and remember in 07, the game before, you had that big fight between Miguel Olivo and Jose Reyes, and they ran up the score. I think they were were up 14-1 or something like that. And then John Main pitched a no-hitter into the eighth inning that game. So you had this moment where They got back into their season. They were neck and neck. They were tied for the division going into the final game of the year. And of course, you have your chest pumped out. You're like, all right. They won 14-1. Everything's great. And then they lose that Sunday game in 2007 where in 2008, against the same Florida Marlin team, pretty much, where the Saturday game, Johan Santana comes back from three days rest. He throws 125 pitches and throws a complete game shutout. Three hit. And you're feeling great again And it's almost as if The script was written the same And although they didn't have The big lead that they did in 2007 But they were tooth and nail Fighting it throughout Especially with the Milwaukee Brewers As far as the wild card is concerned And then When you get to that final game And it's amazing how In back-to-back years The script was exactly the same But the Sunday game The final game of the year Was just as bad Because The Mets were able to get a, they were down 2 nothing, and then Carlos Beltran, hits a two-run homer, he ties the game, and then Scott Schoenweiss, remember him, gives up back-to-back home runs, I believe Dan Ugler and Wes Helms, and then Ryan Church, who if you recall, the start of that year, in the first six to eight weeks of that season, he was on an all-star pace, but then he crashes into the wall, he gets concussed, and he wasn't the same player after that. He had a runner on, hits a fly ball deep to left center field. You're thinking, May or right center, you're thinking it has a chance to get out. And no, it gets caught at the wall or in the warning track and the Mets lose. But what made that worse, that was the last game ever played at Chase Stadium. Uh, you can't make it up. I mean, back-to-back years, they lose to the same team in the same fashion on the last day, not making it to the postseason. So I, that, to me, that's the honorable mention. But number one on this list, people, before I get to the NFL draft, Number one on this list, and I don't care. You could argue this to the cows come home because this was franchise changing. Game four, 1988, NLCS, Mets and Dodgers. Mets jumped on John Tudor, who used to kill the Mets, especially in his days in St. Louis. But by the time he was the Dodger, he wasn't the same pitcher. They were up two games to one. They had that crazy game, if you remember. Game three at Shea it was rainy, wet, damp, where Jay Howell, the relief pitcher, they brought the glove over to the commissioner at the time, Bart Giamatti, and they found sandpaper in the glove. They ejected him. Just a wild game. And here it is. a Sunday night. They're up 3-0. They're actually up 4-2 in the ninth inning. Doc Gooden's pitching now into the ninth inning. He walks John Shelby. And I even thought at that moment, I said, now, the next batter was Mike Solskjaer. He's not a home run hitter, but whenever you walk the leadoff guy in baseball, especially in the postseason, man, that always comes back to get you. What happens? Mike Solskjaer hits a two-run homer. Ninth inning. And back then, nobody's worrying about pitch counts. So, oh, take him out to bring in Randy Myers, who was the closer at the time. Nobody's thinking that. Baseball was a different sport, and it was a different time. If this was 2019, Gooden would have been out of the game probably in the sixth inning. And you would have had the closer to lead off the ninth inning. So, of course, people could look at that. Even back then, I don't recall it being that much of a second guess or debate on whether or not Randy Myers should have come in. Especially when you think about John Shelby was a left-handed batter and Mike Solskjaer was a left-handed batter and Randy Myers was a left-handed reliever, hard thrower. But Doc was mowing along. He was pitching a great game until that moment. And then Kirk Gibson is the home run in the 12th inning. Mets get the bases loaded in the bottom of the inning and all. Hershise has to come in to save the day where Kevin McReynolds throws this, hits this parachute that's floating in center field and John Shelby just runs in. I didn't think he had a chance. If the ball would have dropped, the Mets would have won the game. It would have been 3-1, where game five would have been at Shea Stadium the next afternoon. But instead, Shelby catches the ball. The next day, Sid Fernandez pitches, what, two and two-thirds of an inning. Kirk Gibson's a three-run homer over the auxiliary scoreboard there to make it 6 nothing. The Mets tried to come back. Dykes just a three-run homer, but it was too little too late. And then we all know, they won a game six in LA. David Cohn atoned for his comment that he mentioned about Jay Howell, about him being a high school pitcher in game two where he was awful, but he pitched great in the game Number six, and then Ron Darling started game seven against Oral Hershiser, And as we all know, that was the year of Oral Hershiser, the 59 scoreless innings, which is a major league baseball record to this day. The magic carpet ride that the Dodgers were on, he ends up not only winning that game, they went six, nothing, complete game. Mets were nowhere to be found in that game. Darling pitched terrible. And that was franchise changing from this regard. The Mets, although they were competitive in 89, they fell to the Cubs that year. 90 same deal they still had a run in them but they went up against the Pittsburgh Pirates they actually went down to almost the last week of the season to no avail and then after that they started off their season hot and then fell apart where they fired Davey halfway through that 90 season and then Bud Harrelson took over and then the Mets just bottomed out and then forget about it that's why I was franchise changing for a for an organization that from 84 to 90 not throughout the whole decade because I think the Yankees won more games in that decade but during that time from 84 to 90 there was no team in baseball that won more than the Mets did and thankfully that they have at least one World Series win to show for it because if not the Red Sox were literally just the skin of their teeth from winning that World Series as we all know as I chronicled in the podcast a couple weeks back so that was a loss that will forever stick with me and what could you say? If you're a Met fan, you know that's got to be number one. I'm sure maybe to other Met fans, they may look at 2006 when they lost to the Cardinals or even they want to bring up maybe 2015, losing to the Royals. I don't know. But to me, 88, oh, there was no way. And remember, the Mets beat the Dodgers in the regular season 10 out of 11 games. So, come on. That's just how the story goes. So that's it, people. That's as far as my... The losing aspect of What it was like To be on the opposite end And having to deal with that And still having to Have that in the back of my mind (laughs) Knowing That the Games That I've got to witness And experience on the good end And remember forever But sometimes these losses Stick just as long And You can't erase from the memory bank That's what you have here And that's what this podcast Was all about Just to bookend From the Podcast that I Produced Edited and of course hosted two weeks ago All right, and quickly I want to touch on uh, Last night's first round of the NFL Draft That's one of the reasons why I wanted to Produce this podcast today As opposed to releasing it yesterday Because just to get my overview of the first round Obviously I'll cover Rounds 2 and 3 and 4 through 7 More so on Monday's podcast Just to pretty much put a ribbon And a bow on top of that But with the first round last night when you look at what I spoke about earlier, if you listen to the podcast that I released on Monday, episode 126 To me it was about Tua and where he was going to land And I thought that'd be a little bit of intrigue, possibly a little bit of drama when it came to Tua Because who knows, considering his injury history, especially the last couple of years at Alabama Knowing that he was going to be high risk but high reward And we all know that if he was 100% healthy and didn't have any major injuries in college, he probably would have gone number one to the Bengals unless they were that sold on Burrow to the point because he's an Ohio kid and the magic carpet ride that he had here in 2019 to a national title that they were just sold on a kid that was close to home that they wanted to choose him instead of Tua. Which, hey, that was their right of them having a first-round pick. But considering that that was not the case and Tua certainly had all these injuries and there was a lot of doubt In question as far as whether or not Tua was going to get drafted that high And it was smart for them not to trade up They didn't have to trade with Detroit Or the Giants Which I thought was Dave Gelman weeks back When he says hey we're open for business And even Detroit saying hey we'll shop the number three pick To me that was all smokescreens Because even if you're Miami or the Chargers And I mentioned this last week Why would you move up To give up a lot more draft capital Knowing that those quarterbacks will still be there When you're going to choose five and six Because unless Detroit was going to choose a quarterback Knowing that Matthew Stafford Although he had his injuries last year But is still young and still making a ton of money That he was going to be back in the fold next year And certainly the year after So, and the same for the Giants They just drafted a quarterback So why would they even think about bringing in Tua Or even Justin Herbert for that matter The kid from Oregon So they pretty much stood pat And those first six picks were certainly not a shock among anybody who was watching the draft. Now, I'll get to some of the draft stuff later on as far as Goodell and the basement and all that. But as far as the uh, draft is concerned, there weren't really many surprises, I thought. I mean, of course, the big one that everybody's going to look at today is Jordan Love being drafted by the Packers. I get that they should have probably got more help from him, maybe a wide receiver. Or these last few years for Aaron Rodgers Somebody that could bolster that offense That could put them in a position Where they could get to a Super Bowl And that's one thing you got to remember That Super Bowl That the Packers won Was 10 years ago Everybody, you know, talks about Aaron Rodgers And rightfully so and With rave reviews and glowing reviews He's going to the Hall of Fame We get that But, you know, that Super Bowl that he won And you can't erase it Understood But at the same time You know, that wasn't 3-4 years ago And he's 36 years of age And we understand that quarterbacks play well into their 40s I.E. Tom Brady Even Drew Brees But him not getting any help That's going to be the controversy right here And all the talk and all the rage this morning and this afternoon Because for them to choose a quarterback Knowing that Rodgers probably has at least three more years left I guess they want to groom this kid The thing with Jordan Love That he has a high ceiling And maybe a few years holding the clipboard And being on the bench Is going to suit him well So when the time comes that Rodgers does happen to either retire Or maybe gets released That they have a guy in tow And remember the Packers had done this before With Brett Favre When they drafted Aaron Rodgers in 2005 Now granted that Rodgers fell into their lap Considering he was plummeting down the draft board So they were able to pick him at 24 I believe it was But I think it's a smart move from this regard Quarterbacks do not grow on trees And we understand it's hit or miss There are very few can't miss quarterback prospects And when you're getting drafted that low Obviously You're getting drafted that low for a reason But I think it's smart Now granted they're going to have to pay him First round pick money And that could have gone to An offensive lineman Considering they lost Brian Bulaga to the Chargers That could have been another weapon As far as a receiver is concerned The only guy they have is Devontae Adams I know they have Valdez Scanning And a couple other players They don't have Jimmy Graham anymore He's gone so they could have gone that route to bring in another player for the tool chest for Aaron Rodgers and his offense, but for by them drafting a quarterback, is it a stretch? You know what it is, but at the same time, I don't think it's that dumb for the GM to go ahead. I was Brian Guttenkunst. Well, I guess I just pronounce, pronounce his name. For him to go ahead and try to draft a quarterback now, is it risky? I think it is. Is it smart? I think it is too, but it's a giant roll of the dice though, for the reasons I mentioned. Rodgers, because he still has a few years left, and you're going to have Jordan Love here just stand by here for three years until he's ready to perform, and then not only that, but not getting that guy, and I'm sure with their next pick here in the second round, I believe the Packers have another pick, you would think they're going to draft some sort of offensive weapon. So that's, for me, that was like the number one storyline. Well, number two really, because two of them go to Miami and that was certainly the big theme going into last night. The other one is Jordan Love going to the Packers and a little bit of a controversial move by them. The other story is CeeDee Lamb going to the Cowboys. And a lot of people thought Lamb would have been gone by then. The Cowboys were ecstatic. As Jerry Jones says, I couldn't pass up on him. And we all know he learned his lesson going back to 1998 with Randy Moss. If you recall He didn't draft him And we know the career That Moss had And especially that Thanksgiving day game Where three catches For 163 yards And three touchdowns And remember He did the same thing With Des Bryant In 2010 I forgot where Bryant was About 18, 19 And he drafted him He's like uh uh-uh. uh If this guy on the board Even despite his Checkered past How he grew up And even To a certain extent When he played At Oklahoma State uh, I'm drafting this guy And he did And he had a very good career And I'm not trying to say CeeDee Lamb is Randy Moss, or even Des Bryant for that matter. But at the same time, that was a move that they had to get. Now you have somebody to compliment Amari Cooper on the other side. I understand you got Michael Gallup and a couple other guys, but now you really are going to have a high octane offense knowing that you have your wide receiver that you re-signed and is back in the fold. Obviously, Ezekiel Elliott, your quarterback is going to be signed with a franchise deal and maybe get an extension here by June 15th. And we know about the first round pick Out of Oklahoma So that's what you have there As far as the other storyline Now there's a couple others real quick I know people thought maybe perhaps the Eagles Could have taken Justin Jefferson Instead of the kid from TCU Jalen Rieger Rieger has a little bit more speed than Jefferson Jefferson's more of an inside guy As far as playing the slot is concerned I know Jefferson's the more sexy name He comes from a title program Where Rieger is a guy that if anybody's seen him play a full game this year Who's not a college football fan Then they're definitely lying And I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that. Oh yeah, I know about this kid But the Eagles maybe took a little bit of a reach there As far as name is concerned So that's one guy that a lot of people Maybe could scratch their heads and say Eh, I don't know about him Patrick Queen, who the Ravens They seem to draft these guys They They seem to be very smart with their drafts Another LSU kid who a lot of people, they don't want to compare to Ray Lewis, even though Lamar Jackson said, hey, he's Ray Lewis uh, 2.0. He's a lot lighter than Ray Lewis, and I know that's going to be the the stickler there as far as, and he's even said it. I'm sick and tired of having to talk about my weight. I understand I'm 229, I'm light, and I'm a middle linebacker, but I'm going to show and prove to you guys that I'm capable of playing this league and playing middle linebacker. And we know he has speed to burn, and he's sideline to sideline, but let's see if he can take that punishment Especially when trying to stop a run game When you got the likes of Derrick Henry And a couple other backs That are out there That could certainly wreak havoc In a secondary I know the How could I forget this one How the Buccaneers moved up to get Tristan Wirfs A guy to protect A one Tom Brady I know Gronkowski Was part of that uh, trade For a fourth round pick With the Patriots the other day And I'm not going to really talk about that much I may talk about a little bit on Monday But that's a move that Tampa Hey if they felt that By bringing them two together To have that championship pedigree To permeate in that locker room To get through to the young kids Instead of just having the quarterback there But now you have the tight end Then so be it I'm sure Belichick is happy He got a fourth round pick Gronkowski How much does he have left? Remains to be seen He may have one year Considering he took this year off And he's now Got to bulk himself back up Because he certainly doesn't look The way he should As far as the tight end is concerned He's lost a lot of weight He's hit, hit the party circuit WrestleMania You name it But at the same time It was a smart move by Tampa to do that and of course get the offensive tackle the kid worse from Iowa to protect Brady there and that's certainly they're going to need as much protection as they possibly can get. You know, and then of course teams took needs whether it was the Giants taking the offensive tackle which they had to do to protect not only Daniel Jones but also that running game with Saquon Barkley the Jets did the same thing with Makai Becton who could be a little bit of a project but a lot of upside with him. I know a lot of people thought maybe the Saints had a reach there with Cesar Ruiz getting a center, but they shored that line as well. They got to protect and certainly have to have an anchor on that offensive line for Drew Brees. Uh, And to me, the first round wasn't wasn't as dramatic as I thought it would be. Yeah, there were trades made and teams moved up and teams moved out, Patriots moved out of the first round. Yeah, I understand that. But still, uh, not a lot of drama. The kid Clyde Edwards Hilaire goes to the Chiefs to just add another weapon to that high-octane offense. I tell you, and I like that kid. When I saw him play against Alabama and the games I saw him this year, uh, I understand a lot of people look at him as Darren Sproles because of the height and the speed, but man, that guy was, he was really good. So the Chiefs just stockpiled even more. And we'll see what happens rounds two, three tonight and then four through seven tomorrow. Now, three quick things about last night. Not a lot of technical glitches. Goodell in his basement I know he's going to butcher To go below his name Now I can't really say His name that great But at least I've gotten better But he certainly did not Do a good job of that I I didn't mind that I know Goodell That was funny in the beginning Egging the fans on And he said Oh I miss the fans And then they had that shot With all the the quads Or the Various Locations Where fans were at And they were booing him I thought that was pretty funny And you know I'm not a Goodell fan So uh, That's one I know people are Ranking over Dave Gettleman about the mask to me that's neither here nor there no big deal Henry Ruggs in a robe uh, oh okay yeah whatever is if there's something you want to write or talk about I get this, I get that there's nothing else to discuss but still and then of course when you have CeeDee Lamb what was it yanking the phone out of his girlfriend's jeez uh, uh, is that a story I mean is it a burner phone everybody wants to uh, allege oh is what is he doing with a second phone uh, you can think whatever you want but to me that's neither here nor there I could kill us. And that's it I mean what what more could you say Let's see what happens here The rest of this draft We'll cover it all on Monday of course The rest of it And we'll see if uh, Any other trades or drama Or anything Happens to resurface As far as players dropping Sleepers All that good stuff We'll certainly Touch back here On the Monday episode Which will be 1 to 8 Alright people That'll do it I know it's a little longer Than I thought But Thank you for downloading And listening to this content I Greatly appreciate it I appreciate all of your Support, love, etc In listening to what it is they have to say about What goes on in the world of sports And you can continue doing that By just subscribing to this podcast On wherever you get your podcast, Whether it's on Apple, Google Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify iHeartRadio, Luminary i greatly appreciate it If you could do so Leave a rating, post a review Just so it could get a lot more hits For those who aren't familiar With this podcast To increase the visibility Also on jreels.com On the website as well And then in turn Hopefully that will not only just to generate interest But the people outside of Not knowing what this podcast is about Whether it's the former athlete, current athlete The broadcaster, writer, blogger Etc, you name it Just so I can have them on Because the goal is to recap the week of sports On my Monday episode And then later in the week Whether Thursday or Friday Have the second podcast Which is dedicated to the guest. So I certainly want to do that Over the course of time And with your contribution That will certainly be a tremendous help you can also hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise Whatever it may be across the board on any of my social media accounts Whether it's J Reels or the J Reels Podcast On my Instagram feeds On Twitter, J Reels 1, just the number The J Reels Podcast at gmail.com Which is the email address if you want to do it the old-fashioned way And last but not least on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast The fan page there Please feel free to hit me up I'll be sure to follow up right back Whatever it may be Any suggestions Like I said Criticism Praise Whatever Anything that you could add I'll be open to it So don't be shy people I'm 127 episodes in And I hope to have Not hundreds I want thousands more From here on out Because As you well know For those who have been with me From one episode To 127 I love to share My insight To inform And entertain you guys On everything That goes on The world of the diamond The world of the ice The world of the gridiron The world of the hardwood the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, J-Rules Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South of the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the j Podcast, on the flip baby.